Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. The Behind the Knife Trauma Surgery Video Atlas is finally here. Preparing for the deadliest injuries is challenging, and currently available resources are limited. That is why we created this amazing resource. The Trauma Surgery Video Atlas contains 24 scenarios, all including never-before-seen, high-definition intraoperative footage, rich original illustrations, and practical, easy-to-read pearls that will help you dominate the most difficult trauma scenarios. Penetrating injury to the neck, audible bleeding from the IVC, you've got this. And all of this is always available at your fingertips via our website and app. Check out BehindTheKnife.org for more. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. We are very excited to be back with you for another Journal Club and Colon and Rectal Surgery. Today, we're going to dive into two papers on anal dysplasia and anal squamous cell cancer with the Leahy Colorectal Surgery team. Reminder, there is, yes, another awesome colorectal group coming to us out of Louisville. We've recorded two episodes so far on ostomies and perineal wounds flaps. And we do have another very, very special guest who is joining us today, uh, and I'm going to introduce them shortly. So welcome uh, again, team, Dr. Peter West Marcello, Dr. Tess Hannah Allett. How's it going, guys? Oh, it's awesome. It's great to be back together. We're getting into the holiday season, so we just had Thanksgiving. There's a lot to be thankful for. We did tremendous in our match for our residency, and we're very excited about that. Last night, we just had our holiday party, so it was a time to get everybody together and, and enjoy. And as we get to, to Christmas coming, Santa was very nice to us, and I think I'm very proud of uh, the number of presentations we have at the podium as posters and video for the national meeting. So a lot to be thankful for, and I want to wish all of behind the night listeners a happy and healthy holiday season. Test. Man, I can't really follow that. That was a great uh, <laughs> update. Uh, things are good. Things are good. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I guess I'm pregnant. I'm expecting it. Yes. Yeah. So I'm doing, doing my best to stay hydrated and eating fiber to avoid the hemorrhoids and fissure. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 TMI, but thank you for that anyway. Very nice. <laughs> Uh, and this is number two. This is number two for tests, we have to say. So yeah. congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right. Let's introduce our very, very special guest who's joining us. I'm honored to take a first crack at introducing Dr. Lisa Breen. So Dr. Breen completed her medical school at Brown University. Uh, she then went on and did her uh, general surgery training at Beth Israel Deaconess. Uh, and then she completed her colon rectal surgery fellowship at... Obviously, none other than Lady Hospital Medical Center, but was wasn't called Lady Hospital Medical Center then, right? It was Lady Lady Hitchcock. Were we in the? Yeah, I think I was the one Lady Hitchcock here. No, me too. (laughs) We're both Lady. All right, all right. She then took a job at Brigham and Women's uh, Medical Center, where she spent twenty years, and then we were lucky enough to have her rejoin the team at Lady. Uh, and she actually served as our fellowship program director uh, starting in 2017. So we're thrilled to have her join us today and share her expertise on the topic. Thank you for coming. Right. Well, thanks for inviting me. I was saying earlier, I think my role here is the history. 
<laughs> so Peter and I were talking earlier before the recording started about this is a very different disease back when we were fellows. But I'm looking forward to hearing all the new stuff. But I just want to give a shout out to Lisa because she really broke ground as the as one of the first colorectal surgeons to be at Brigham and Women's. Did a tremendous job there. And then also her her role in education. I mean, she was a year behind me, but I've learned a lot from Lisa Breen in terms of education. She was in charge of the Harvard clerkship for the medical students. And then we were lucky to have her here and take over our residency program. And we're, we're really excited to have her with us and to be with us tonight. Go ahead, John. All right. Well, let's dive into the heart of this discussion of anal dysplasia. This is a very, very confusing topic for all, and admittedly, sometimes even for us colorectal surgeons. And a part of that is because the terminology, at least in regards to pathology, is actually quite variable, and, and the literature is a bit limited. And so there's extraordinary variability in practice patterns. And so hopefully, we, by the end of today, will be able to break down some of the barriers to understanding this topic. So we have two great articles to review. So Tess is going to start us off with an article from Diseases in Cold Rectum that was actually coming out of Spain, published in 2022. And then I'm going to share the results of the much-anticipated ANCHOR trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2022. So Tess, why don't you take it away, and we'll go, go to the next slide. Again, a reminder for those of us who are, those of you who are watching uh, on YouTube, you can follow along with us. Thanks, John. So this study aimed to determine the incidence of anal squamous cell cancer and the efficacy of a screening program. It took place in an HIV clinic in Spain from 2004 to 2017, and their primary outcome was the incidence of anal squamous cell cancer, ultimately finding that participation in a screening program reduced the incidence of anal squamous cell cancer. Before I dive in too deep, I just wanted to clear up some of the terminology that you alluded to, which I think reviewing the literature can be very confusing because the terminology can be so variable and why discussing this topic can be challenging. If you're following again on YouTube, check out this slide. I think this schematic is helpful in terms of understanding dysplasia and progression to anal cancer. Additionally, anal cancer is mainly caused by the HPV virus type 16 and 18. This virus changes the cells and again can cause both L-cell and H-cell. This terminology has been confusing because previously it was termed AIN 1, 2, and 3. And so there can be a lot of variability when you're looking at studies or reviewing pathology or outside providers' notes in terms of the pathology. Now we are recommending that everything get lumped into two categories, low grade or high grade, this L cell or H cell. So we're going to try to be consistent tonight in using those terms. So HIV. I'll just, I'll just jump in. Sorry, I'll just jump in one yeah. second, Tess. And Matt, sometimes um, I remember a, a, a professor or, or a, um, a surgeon who taught us in residency would be very, 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 very particular about the words we used. Uh, and I, I think as a trainee, uh, sometimes found that maybe a little annoying. Um, but I do think when you're talking to talk, it, it is important actually to really be able to speak the correct lingo. So it, it might seem like a, maybe a silly thing out there, but it actually is quite important. So I just want to emphasize that. Absolutely. Completely agree. So 
HIV, as many of us know, is associated with increased risk of anal squamous cell cancer. The study that they performed in Spain was conducted in an infectious disease clinic in Spain where patients living with HIV were routinely followed. So this is an existing population. Data was prospectively entered beginning in 2004, and patients were basically included if they had at least one follow-up visit. Beginning in 2010, they instituted a specialized screening program treating anal neoplasia that was abbreviated SCAN. And this program was specifically for men who have sex with men within the clinic. This program included various efforts, including anal cytology, high-resolution manoscopy, as well as some treatment, mainly thermocoagulation of high-grade or H-cell lesions. I think this is a very important point in all of these studies on anal condyloma or anal cancer. You know, what is the intervention? And so, again, they did screening with cytology and high-resolution anoscopy and then performed, again, some thermocoagulation for the high-grade lesions. The study was divided into two periods. So the first period was in 2004 to 2010 before they instituted the SCAN program. And then afterwards, from 2011 to 2017, they had a very fairly robust population with a total of 3,800 patients participating in the study. 41% of these were men who had sex with men, and 17% were women. So a majority of these were male patients. In total, 897 participated in the SCAN program when it began in 2010. Uh, they also monitored CD4 counts as well as immune restoration in terms of HIV status. During the study period, a total of 20 anal squamous cell cancers were diagnosed, which worked out to about 1.5 cases per year, 55% of these being diagnosed within the MSM population, and 4 of 20 were diagnosed in the SCAN group who are being actively screened and potentially treated. All of these cancers, the four out of 20, were early stage cancers, T1 or T2. Two of these were asymptomatic and were detected at routine visits. The other two had actually not attended the recommended or scheduled visits and were diagnosed due to symptoms later on. Whereas in the non-screening group, the non-scan group, only 25% of these cancers were diagnosed at early stage, so more likely to be a later stage at the time of diagnosis, which I think is an important point. The overall incidence and rate of anal squamous cell cancer was 68 per 100,000 person years in this cohort of HIV patients. And looking at the various time periods, they did note an increase in incidence throughout the study with the later time period having an increased incidence of anal squamous cell cancer. Um, anal squamous cell cancer. The rates were dramatically higher in the MSM population. Um, they did look at immune reconstitution, and that was noted to be a protective factor. So if your HIV was under better control, highlighting the importance of heart therapy and HIV suppression in developing anal squamous cell cancer. And the strongest impact that they found was the lack of immune restoration in terms of your rate of developing this. 
If you're less than 35 or over 50, you had high education or injection use as tr transmission of HIV, this was protective for squamous cell uh, cancer, again, in their population. So when comparing anal squamous cell from 2010 to 2017 in the scan group compared to the follow-up, there are significantly decreased rates of anal squamous cell in the scan group, the screening group. Based on this, they concluded that participation in this screening program significantly reduced the incidence of anal squamous cell cancer in the MSM population. So I think this overall study had limited data in terms of adherence and compliance to the program. While their initial numbers were really good, 3,800, a smaller number that was actually enrolled in their screening program. And again, this applies to a limited population. This was a HIV MSM population that was in the screening program. So thinking about how this is generalizable to the broader population that we might be seeing. So it also, the other thing, we didn't get the specific details on maybe the treatment that they had received and what the patients got. Thanks, Tess. It's helpful to go through these papers and really try and hit on what are some of the key points. I guess I'm interested to hear, Lisa, your thoughts about the paper, I guess, putting it into a little bit of the historical context about training, early part of your career. What was the, what were some of the thought processes about how do we screen these patients or some of the treatment options? So uh, what do you think? So well, I guess, first of all, I thought it was well presented, Tess. Thank you for going through that. And I do think the value, particularly talking about who are the high-risk people uh, that really you need to be watching out for screening. But I think Peter and I were talking earlier, like when we were fellows, right, this wasn't a disease, right? Because no one had HPV really back then. Or if they did, they didn't have it long enough to be starting to have these problems. And when someone had anal squamous cell, it was a big deal. And when someone had anal dysplasia, it was really unusual. And so we would take these people to the OR, do these mapping biopsies about 10 centimeters out from their anus. And a lot of times it would microscopically come back positive, even though we might have seen this little area of demarcation on the perianal scan or some frond-like lesion within the anal canal that came back H-cell, and we would remove. And then we got really stuck with, what are we going to do about all this microscopic stuff? And so then there were kind of two schools of thought. One school of thought was well, we have to find a better way to identify H-cell besides just looking at it. And then there was kind of the school of thought that said, well, it, it's going to have to go through a phase where you're going to see something to the naked eye before it goes into invasive cancer. And so if we just survey people frequently enough that we catch anything that needs to be treated, we'll treat it. And so I think for people of my generation, that's always been the trouble. It hasn't been, should we survey these people? It's been, how can we survey them frequently enough or effectively enough that we catch these lesions? So we don't really know the timeline and we don't really know the best tools. And so this says, if you watch people and see something you want to treat, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> But I don't think you can say much more because they didn't say what, you know, the routine, what the policy was before, what it was after in terms of intervals, compliance, et cetera, et cetera. Were all these lesions only seen on HRA or some of them seen visibly? So it's tricky. Yeah, I'll add to that just to say that I think it's a matter of also then figuring out your risk population, right? I mean, so we're talking about the patients who are at highest risk, you know, men having sex with men, HIV positive population and how it relates to then to your general population. And I think that makes it even more confusing. But I think the important message, there needs to be some screening done to help patients 
whether they're high, whether you're, they're in the highest risk population or even a lower risk, especially if they have HCL versus LCL. And so all I will say is if you're LCL to begin with, you're probably not going to flip as often to HCL, at least in our understanding of this. And so history can repeat itself. So I worry less about somebody who doesn't have worrisome lesions or worrisome risk factors. Although it is really interesting because there are a lot of patients uh, that I've seen in the transplant population, right? And so they're immunocompromised because they're transplant and they had cervical or vulvar dysplasia. Then it was perianal, then it went into the anal canal. Um, and so it kind of spreading that way. So I feel almost like when someone, I do think the high risk populations that they've identified in test as paper are super important to pay attention to. But I think if anybody shows up with HCL, I can't seem to stop wanting to survey them. Yeah, agreed. Agree, agree. All right, let's launch into the ANCHOR trial. So this was also known as the treatment of anal high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions to prevent anal cancer. And so we actually had the the benefit and luxury and full disclosure to do a journal club within our Leahy program last week. And so we actually <laughs> reviewed this article as well as the other article. And so, you know, one of the interesting points I'll just bring up is like, all along, there's always been this question of like, what do we do with HPV and HCL? And the thought process was, well, let's just wait for Anchor. Let's just wait for Anchor. And then we'll know all the answers. So let's talk about the article and see if we have all the answers. So the the background or the, the impetus for the study. So we we believe that anal cancer is preceded by, uh, by HCL, um, but data was really lacking from prospective studies about the treatment of HCL and whether or not that can actually prevent anal cancer. So this was a phase three multi-institutional randomized study that investigated whether treatment for HCL is effective and safe in reducing the risk of progression to anal cancer among persons living with HIV compared with active monitoring of HCL without treatment. The study was conducted at 25 U.S. sites. Um, one of the things I learned is that uh, one of our partners, Dr. Coonan, was at BMC when they were enrolling and was actually a part of you know helping enroll and, and take care of some of these patients. So patients with HIV who were 35 years or older with biopsy-proven HCL were randomly assigned to either active monitoring or treatment of the HCL. Okay, and so treatment, at least the way that they defined it in this study, is that it could be office-based ablative procedures ablation or excision under anesthesia or the use of topical fluorouracil or amiclomod. So again, with any of these studies, it's important to be clear what's the intervention. So intervention in this study was ablation or excision of or, or topical fluorouracil or amiclomod of HCL. So the primary outcome was progression to anal cancer and all participants underwent HRA every six months. So they had about 4,400 patients who underwent randomization the median follow-up was uh, about 25 months. There were nine cases of anal cancer in the treatment group and 21 in the active surveillance group. And the rate of progression to anal cancer was lower in the treatment group by about 57%. Uh, so Kappenmeyer curves did demonstrate a decreased rate of progression to anal cancer in the treatment group. And so while the trial didn't necessarily look at the efficacy of different methods for treating HCL, most, in fact, were office-based electrocautery. So overall, the study demonstrates that the treatment for anal HCL does significantly reduce the progression to anal cancer among persons living with HIV 
35 years or older. Uh, and there was a low incidence uh, of serious adverse events. And so I think I'll just say, I think it's a well-conducted randomized controlled trial with good study design. There, there's certainly limitations of the study, but I think I'm interested to hear what, well, again, start with Letha. So what are your thoughts about anchor trial and what this means for us going forward? I mean, I agree with you that it's good to finally have something that's, you know, this rigorous in terms of a trial out there to sort of give some guidance. And like we were saying earlier, sure, if you know someone has HCL, you should definitely treat it, right? The question is, where is it? And how do you know, like, what the borders of it are, right? Because this was great that it was biopsy-proven HCL, but it wasn't like, is it demarcated? Is it a field defect of the whole anal canal or the whole perianal skin? And because they would treat it a lot of times and with things that didn't like non-excision treatment, right? So you didn't know whether your margins were negative when you treated it, right? So it's great that the patients are being surveyed, maybe being surveyed by something that maybe is going to be more important at reducing the, the transmission. I mean, the development of invasive square cell than just looking via anoscopy. Hard to say, but this is certainly one making you wonder about that. And then I think that the thing that historically has always been tough is that we would excise all this stuff. Uh, and there was a lot of morbidity with that. And so this has shown you that you can probably do other forms of treatment, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that, um, you know, could be very effective and don't really harm the patients in terms of their continence or a lot of problems with pain and, and other other things like that. So I think it's all very positive and moving people towards paying attention to these patients and trying to figure out who's got HCL and where is it and is it a visible lesion or is it a field defect? And, and then what are your treatment options? Yeah. And for me, I'll just carry forward just the historical perspective. When Lisa and I were in our trainings in our early years, all we had was excisional treatments. You know, we didn't think that just ablating, thermal ablation would be adequate for these lesions. So the problem is the morbidity. Like you would excise and then they would get a stricture. And now you're dilating the anus. So again, also with vulvar lesions in a similar fashion that our only thought was, well, we better remove the tissue rather than try to treat the tissue. And when, so I think sometimes less is more and that I think our, our mode movement now is away from less major excisions and more about other options. And so I think less is more, it can be helpful. Yeah, I think this anchor trial gives us really good data to say that treating H-cell decreases the rate of anal cancer, specifically also in these high-risk populations. It seems like we're all on the same page about that. If you have H-cell, we have to treat it, right? And this supports that. Um, and it is a good study, prospectively well-designed, big study that helps to kind of solidify that thinking. Um, I guess we've Lisa, you kind of alluded to this, but what did they use? What treatment options? I think the question that I have is, you know, how are these people being surveyed? Do we have to do high resolution anoscopy for everybody or is office-based anoscopy digital exam okay? And so I kind of open that up to the group to say, what are you guys doing now and what should we be doing as a society? Because I know that there's still a lot of debate about how these people should be surveyed. So I think that's a great question, Tess. I mean, I think, again, we used to call this the East Coast, West Coast debate. Because everybody on the West Coast wanted to do HRA and everyone on the East Coast wanted to do anoscopy. And so I'm still not sure that these studies 
are granular enough to sort of say whether HRA is necessary uh, to find the HCL or not. It certainly doesn't seem like it hurts, particularly if even if you're kind of not really sure where the margins of your HCL are, um, the treatments aren't um, all that morbid. So it's okay to maybe over-treat some areas or maybe under-treat and then catch them the next go-round, you know, kind of thing. But I don't think a digital exam is probably adequate because most of this stuff is soft. And by the time it's firm, it's probably already progressed. But I do think, you know, at the very least, a good anoscopy and may, and probably a lot of people are going to be comfortable with HRA once people get past what I think is a pretty tough learning curve for that. Yeah, and I think part of it is the risk, the patient with risk. If you've got discrete lesion one, discrete lesion you've removed and you haven't seen anything else, I'm not sure that person then, maybe they get HRA for a little bit and then they fall back out if nothing else is showing. And like, again, history repeats itself. If you got somebody with multifocal HCL, then that person, and, they, and you keep finding it, then that person is going to keep getting high-resolution anoscopy. So part of matching a bit of the what you're going to do to what you're concerned about for the patient. Yeah, not to cross-pollinate too much or be a self-promoter too much, but I'll just throw a plug in there that our recent Gut Check, po Gut Check podcast, which is our official podcast for ASCRS, we talked about this. And we talked about like all the different variations in practice and HRA and how you do screening. And we sort of went around and talked about what are, how our offices are set up and who does it. And there's just huge variability out there. And I think, yes, there was a concept, I think that like, oh, we'll just wait for Anchor and that will tell us everything. But like Anchor wasn't there to tell us how are you going to do HRA the best. I think that, so I think that's where it's like really focusing on what is the goal of the study and what's the takeaway. And yeah. And I do think that there are, there's definitely room in the literature to kind of tackle that as a next step in terms of hammering down how are we implementing doing HRA and what are the like bigger prospective studies in terms of using that technique and then specifically how often compliance adherence and some of the treatment that is being used, you know, along with HRA. Any other in terms of, I know when I was at Leahy, Dr. Breen, I believe that you were starting to do more in collaboration with, I think, maybe dermatology or ID in regards to some of the antiviral therapies. Are you still using any of these or what's been your experience with some of the topical treatments? So I think that's a great question. So I think, again, how I approach visible lesions, something that's demarcated or raised, or I feel like I know where the borders are. And how I treat something that is just visibly completely normal and maybe some little pinch biopsies have shown HCL here and there, but I'm not really sure on the HRA how discrete these lesions are. Those are kind of kind of the field defect lesions. So if it's small and definable, I'll usually excise it for path, and I like to know that there's negative margins. If it's a field defect, then I think cautery works well inside the anal canal. The cautery of the perianal skin is rough. I think topical treatments of the perianal skin are a great choice, but it's hard to get patients to put the topical treatments inside the anus all the way up to the dentate line. Yes. And it's kind of one of these things where like you try a little cautery, then you try a little effudex. And then we started getting interested, like you said, based on 
collaboration with dermatology with an agent called Sidofavir, which is another one of these uh, broad spectrum DNA against DNA viruses. And it's, it, I think it may end up being more helpful for L-cell and condyloma because that's where a lot of the work has been done. And again, topical lesions. And so I've had a few patients that I've shared with dermatology who've had just confluent condyloma of the whole perineum and the topical Sidofavir cream has been great. But you have to fail Adara a couple times, and then you have to really go at the negotiating with the insurance companies with all the letters, et cetera, et cetera, and follow up. I think when you were a fellow, we experimented for a little while with thinking about intralesional, it was called, Sidofavir. And the idea here was, again, H cells keep showing up inside the anal canal. The patient can't put the topical cream up there. We've fulgurated it a few times. There's just too, it's too diffuse to think about excision without causing stricture. So we were like, well, maybe we can just start injecting the IL interlesional sidofovir, which is something that has been done for like laryngeal condyloma. But, you know, I think with people being more free with electrocautery and with the interlesional being, you know, it, I'm just not sure we've been feeling like there's a big need for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it and it doesn't seem as sort of diffusely applicable because you have to get under the mucosa and inject. So it's like not like the cautery where you can kind of, you know, yeah. buzz all around. Yeah, just I'd say for me for treatment, it's hard for me to get patients to comply with topicals. And therefore, I'm more likely to be doing some intervention, whether it's excision or thermal treatment. I've not had good experience in my population of the topicals long term. Of the perianal skin as well, or just the perianal skin. That's what I'm talking about. We have it on the outside. I just sometimes I, I guess I'm more. I will treat you, and then we'll follow you. Whether than you're they're, they're taking control of their disease, I find it harder. <laughs> Don. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I would say like, and, and not to be too like off-putting about it, but it's a little like you come to the barber and it's like, I, and so I'm like, I'm more inclined to say, let's cut something out. And so I guess I would say I'm not always like that for all disease processes, but I feel like I'd be much more inclined to trust like going to the OR and trying to cut something out or ablate it as opposed to saying, try this topical cream. So that's, I think, my bias. I, you know, so far early on, I don't have as much experience, but you know, maybe patients where I'm a little hesitant to go to the OR or will try topical treatments where maybe they have some more comorbidities or frail, I found even trying the topicals, they then often maybe will have trouble applying it and doing it like we've talked about. So ultimately have still ended up having to go to the OR to ablate or excise. And so I agree with what everybody said. There's definitely a lot of, I think, limitations to the the topical treatments. Well, I'll just say, I think this is a great discussion. I think our listeners will agree. Don't you guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Breen. So let's get to some of our takeaways. So Tess, why don't you kick us off? Yes. So know your high-risk populations and make sure when you're seeing patients that you're asking all the questions in order to identify and properly uh, acknowledge what patients you should be following more closely. And then depending on, you know, each patient, you're going to need to have an informed discussion about all the different options and kind of come to an agreement on, you know, what is going to be appropriate for that patient, whether you want them in a formal HRE program, whether you're going to do endoscopy in the office. 
uh, making sure you're following those patients and have a treatment plan, I think is key. All right, I'll go to you for the Marcel's must knows. Well, first, treat H cell. Okay, I think we're all all in agreement about that. But history tends to repeat itself. If you've got somebody who's not growing a lot of lesions much, don't be as aggressive. And sometimes I think less is more. I am doing more probably thermal treatments and less aggressive resections to avoid the complications. Treatment can be worse than the disease. Greens, besties, thoughts. <laughs> And I think I'm saying the same thing everyone else is saying here, which is treat any reliably identifiable HCL that you know of in any patient. And it can still be a little tricky what is reliably identifiable HCL. You know, like Jess was saying, plain endoscopy, high-resolution endoscopy, how are we really going to find this stuff? And then there are much less morbid treatment options available, available nowadays than just pure excision. And so I think that gives us a little latitude to be a little more aggressive in treatment. Ableson's approach. Yeah, Ableson's approach. So I think it's jury's still out a little bit about how we, what's the exact best way to do surveillance and treat. And so I would just say, like, don't throw up your hands and not do anything. I would just say, pick something that you feel comfortable with and follow your patients and watch closely. I think even that, hopefully, if there is going to be a cancer, you'll find it early. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap up our eighth episode. And again, if you like diving into the weeds, you consider uh, joining us Sunday evenings for our colorectal surgery virtual education series. Uh, you can also check out some of our show notes for some details. And so we do hope we continue to have the privilege of creating awesome content for you in the future. Uh, in May, we're going to uh, present an interesting case about peristomal hernias, talk about a couple interesting approaches. And I uh, will say if you enjoyed the session, do take a minute or two out of your day to leave us a review. And so as Behind the Knife says, team, until the next time. Dominate the day. And happy holidays from Leahy to the Behind the Knife listeners. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.